Good evening. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this evening, back with everyone. And uh, find my spot here. I want to echo Brother Justin's sentiments. We're thankful for all the visitors that have come out tonight. And uh, we hope you feel welcome here tonight to follow the Lord, as that's what we want you to do, as we have all week. Um, I'll also echo his sentiments about how good it's been to be here these last few nights. Um, I was trying to describe it to somebody this week. And of course, we often get caught up in measurables. You know, how many people are seeking the Lord and how many people are getting saved and how many people have been baptized and all these different numbers. Uh, But the Lord has been doing intangible things here this week. And they're having a dramatic impact upon our church. I can feel it. They're having a dramatic impact upon me. I'm dreaming about being here. Every night. We were over the other night at the Carter's house, and uh, we were sitting back on the back patio, and I kind of dimmed my eyes for probably no more than two, three minutes. And I was dreaming about preaching here. Um, Last night, I had to drive home, and I say home, uh, bad habit, driving back to Indiana, and uh, I went to turn on the radio, and it was some secular song, and I had no interest in it. And the whole way home, the Lord just ministered to my heart. I was just awake. And I laid in that chair at about 2.30 in the morning, and I just couldn't go to sleep. I was just so eager to come back and to feel what the Lord's been doing to us. Um, I want these lost people to be saved. But I also want the Lord to continue to do what he's doing on us. And I'm satisfied if he'll do either, but I know that he desires to do both. And um, I'll try not to make these preliminary comments too long, but as I was driving home last night, I was thinking, what is it? You know, what is it that's so different? And I don't, I don't know. I don't know necessarily, but I think I feel a lot of love here. Like the people who are testifying and singing and participating, it's like they've lost sight of themselves. And I thought of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, Now the end of the commandment is charity with a pure heart and faith unfeigned. I think the King James kind of obscures that meaning to some degree. I think what he's saying is there's this. Now the end purpose of the commandment is to wrought in us love from a pure heart and sincere faith. Or in other words, what Brother Justin and I have been up here doing every night, the goal of it, 
when we meet in the house of God and we proclaim the word of God is that it would cultivate in the hearts of listeners love, pure love and sincere faith. But what I've been excited about in me and Justin talked last night on the way home is we don't need the preaching. We're already there. And that's a wonderful place to be is when the people are already in a state where the love is present and their belief that God is going to do something is already here. And I'm thankful that we've had those services and we laughed last night and said, I don't think it would matter what we've preached. Uh, The Lord was here and he's been moving. And I'm thankful for that very much. Um, But you pray for me this evening as as I do try to preach uh, what the Lord's put upon my heart and pray you'd be attentive um, tonight. If you have your Bibles and you'll read along with us, I'm going to take a text from the book of 2 Kings chapter 7. The book of 2 Kings chapter 7. And we'll read verses 1 through 11 and then verses 17 through 20. 2 Kings chapter 7. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow... About this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then a lord of whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate, And they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come, and let us fall into the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. And they rose up in the twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled into the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. When these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went in and hid it. Then they said one to another, we do not well this, we do not well. This day is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. So they came and called unto the porter of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither voice of man, but horses tied and asses tied in the tents as they were. And he called the porters, and they told it to the king's house within. Look at verse 17. And the king appointed the Lord of whose hand he leaned to have the charge of the gate, And the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died, as the man of God had said, 
who spake when the king came down to him. And it came to pass as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And that Lord answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might such a thing be. And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shall not eat thereof. And so it fell out unto him. For the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. That'll conclude our reading this morning, or excuse me, this evening. Uh, Forgive me the mistakes that I might have made in the reading, please. Um, But our title for this lesson today, or for the message today is, Nothing to Lose, But Everything to Gain. Nothing to Lose, But Everything to Gain. Some pretty awesome stuff going in here in 2 Kings chapter 7. Um, A little background to this, to perhaps catch us up on some context, is that the Syrians and the Israelites, at this time Israel has been divided, and there's a northern kingdom called Israel, and there's a southern kingdom called Judah. And at this time, they had made some kind of agreements, but they were constantly ignoring those agreements, and they continued to fight with each other. And so here we have it that what Syria has done is they have come to the capital city, and they have what's called sieged it, which was a common tactic uh, for thousands of years that was done even up until uh, the last few hundred years. And what you would do is you would send an army, and you would encamp all around that army, or excuse me, all around that city, and you would try to starve the people to death. And nobody was able to come out, and nobody was able to come in, and you were hoping one of two things, that either the people would surrender and come out, or when you made your plan of attack, that they would be so weakened that they could not fight against you. And so this is the tactic that Syria is carrying out on this capital city there in Samaria. And the previous chapter tells us that it is working very effectively. The people are starving to death. And it gives us in the previous chapter, in chapter 6, the extent of desperation that these people found themselves in. It said that they were so hungry that the head of a donkey cost 80 shekels to buy. If you were to equate that today, that's over $1,000. How appetizing does the head of a donkey sound to everyone tonight? And yet that was the point. Is that they were so desperate that they would take something that nobody would find appetizing and give an absurd amount of money just to have something. And yet what we find is that it even got worse. There's two mothers, and they're on the brink of death. And their children are on the brink of death. And so one mother says to another, now I want you to mothers to imagine this. Your child is almost dead. You're almost dead. Everyone around you is. And the mother says, why don't we boil your child today and eat your child? And then tomorrow, we'll eat mine. 
That's not fiction. That was a true story. And the absurd part is one of the mothers did it. She was so hungry that she ate her own offspring. So what she does is the next day, she's still hungry. And she, so she goes to reckon with this lady and the other woman won't do it. And so that second lady goes to the king and hollers at the king and says, Oh, king, here's what happened. And that makes the king angry. But it's important to note whom he was angry at. He was not angry at the woman who unfaithfully carried out or did not carry out that agreement. But he was angry at the prophet of God. He was angry at Elisha. Because no doubt he supposed that somehow Elisha could fix the problem and was resisting it. And that's what carries us to chapter 7 that we read to you today. Is that the king sends a man to go before him. And yet the king is following right after this man to go to Elisha and demand some answers. And as he went to demand answers... What he gets is something that is, I would say, atypical in the Old Testament when a wicked king goes to a prophet. And that is this. Instead of getting bad news, he got really good news. And so here's what he says. He says, listen, here's what's going to happen. We have been starving for a long time. But tomorrow... There's going to be so much bounty. There's going to be so much abundance that the price of food is going to plummet immediately and it's going to be so much that you would not fathom the cheap cost of it. It almost sounded unbelievable. I'm not going to say it almost. It did sound unbelievable. And that's exactly what happens here is there's The messenger that came from the king says, no, there's no way. That's impossible. And because of his doubt and unbelief in the message of God, the prophet looked at him and said, you'll see it, but you will never taste it. So the next day, it changes. You see, there's three, I want you to, in your mind, I want you to picture it. There's three locations going on here. There's the city that's being starved. There's Syria, the Syrian camp where they have camped all around, but there's a station, there's a centered station where they're at. And then there's a place outside of the city where these four men sit dying. And so we get a glimpse inside the city in verses 1 and 2 And the main characters is Elisha and the king and this messenger. And then it's as if it zooms out and it takes us to this random thing going on outside the city. And it's important to note, it was outside the city. 
right? These four men are leprous men. And certainly most of you here tonight have learned about leprosy. And there's a couple brief conclusions that I'll give you about leprosy. It was a disgusting skin disease that people knew where it was contagious. And they thought that a person who had leprosy was being cursed by God. And so people wanted nothing to do with them. And actually the Levitical law gives strict prohibitions about leprosy and how you're to treat people who are leprous and how those people are to try to determine whether they have it or not or whether they have been healed or not. And so the Bible comes up with the strict regulation about how leprosy is supposed to be treated. And one of those things was that those people were supposed to stay away from the crowd and any time they would get near somebody, they were to cry out, leper, leper. To let people know. And if this last year has taught us or given us a little bit of insight to what that must have been like, the heartbreaking experience of wanting to be close to people you love, but you can't. And they didn't have access to all the technology that could ease and soothe some of our distancing. No, a person who was given leprosy was much like those men that I met in Africa who lived in Liberia during the Ebola crisis. You remember just a few years ago when the Ebola crisis broke out in Liberia and these men were medical helpers that were going in and trying to help different communities and they said it was the most awful experience. Now this is coming from a country of Liberia that had civil war for two decades and they said most of the people that we have lived among are missing limbs, or have all different kind of physical alterations because of the horrible civil war and what they said was this, what we experienced during the Ebola crisis was far worse than what we ever experienced during the Civil War. And here was the reason why. He said, if we would come into these little towns, 200 people, 300 people, and we would get all suited up, and we would go into this home, and you could quickly tell that somebody had Ebola. And we would leave the house, and we would go to the spouse, or we would go to the mother or the grandmother or the child. And we would say, they have Ebola. And they said that person had to make a decision. Either go back in the room and die with them. Or never see your loved one again. Now imagine if you're in the stage of life where what my wife and I are at. Imagine if I came down with Ebola. And my wife is 35 weeks pregnant and I have three boys. And in a culture like that where unemployment is 40 and 50 and 60%, more domestic, more agricultural, that's not a life for a, a young, single, widowed mother to live in. And she's got to make the choice. Do I let my husband die alone? Or do I go in there and die with him and leave three orphans behind? And as they were telling us that story, I can't remember whether Justin was there or not at that time, but as they were telling us the story, they just started weeping. They said, we can't talk about this anymore. When I read about leprosy, those men I often think about because it felt like I got a glimpse into what it must have been like to be a leper. These four men are outside the gate. Now listen, they're outside a city that is so starving, they're killing their own children. And yet these men are somehow even worse off than the people in the city. 
He's talking about no hope. These men had no hope whatsoever. And so they begin to talk. And they say, why don't we go into the city? Why don't we try? Why are we just sitting here until we die? One of them got a little bit of sense about him. And they said, you know, if we go into the city and there's nothing there, we're going to starve to death. And if we stay where we're at, we're going to starve to death. Why don't we try to go to the Syrians who we know have something? They have food. They have plenty of provision. Let's go to them and beg them and see they might kill us. And that's what those men thought is a a likely outcome. They might kill us on the spot, not only because we're from Israel, but also because we're plagued with leprosy. But I might as well come and give it a try. And maybe I will find hope for this condition. I might die one way by leprosy, but I'm not going to starve to death. And so that's what they do, is they go to that place. Oh, and here's the wonderful story. Before the man ever thought about that question, God had made provisions for him. Isn't that so awesome? A thousand years before anybody in this room was born, God made provisions for you. How awesome is that? How awesome is it that I live in a world that has never known, I live in a time where we have never known about not having hope in a Savior. My whole life, you know, that was one of my most joyful things when my children have been born. Hours from the time they're born. Hours. I hold them. And I go open my Bible, and I just want him to hear his name. And so each time I've read the book of Luke, chapter 2, when that man Jesus was born, just like them. I thought, they don't understand it, and that's okay. But you've heard it. Hour number one, hour number two, you heard about Jesus. God had made not only sufficient provisions, abundant provisions. I mean, think about, you're in the middle of a famine. Everybody is dying. And they walk in, and it's silent. Now, if you think of a military base, the last thing I would expect is silence. Even in our present military bases, the last thing I would expect is silence. As I approach the door of any of our military bases, if you were in a war-torn area like Iraq or Afghanistan, and you were now even miles away, they're preparing, they're planning, they see what you're doing, they want to know who's coming, and they're going to be alert. And they walk in, and it's silent. But they notice everything's like normal. It says the horses were still tied up, the animals were still tied up, the tents were still standing up. Everything was perfectly normal. And they go in and they look inside of a tent and nobody's there. And they go and they look in another one and nobody's there. And they realize there's this abundance of food everywhere. 
And so what do they begin to do? They begin to gorge themselves. They've been starving to death and they see the abundance and they begin to eat and eat and eat. And then they recognize, listen, there's enough for today and there's enough for tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And so they go into the first tent and they grab gold and silver and clothing, which had no doubt been rotting off of their very skin. And they grab all of those things and they go and they bury it and they hide it. And then they run back and it said they go into another tent and they grab more stuff and they run. And I'll say this week, I feel like those leprous men. I have felt all week long, every night as I come back, like I'm just grabbing troves of blessings from how God is using his people. And I'm coming back and I'm burying them. And I'm coming back the next night expecting maybe something will wane. Maybe things will calm. Maybe God's people will, will falter to exhaustion and tiredness. And yet each time that we come back, my heart is filled even more with God's blessings. They go back and they bury it again. Well, and something dawns on them. My stomach's full and my tent is full, but there's a city starving. And so they say, we should go tell those people. We need to go tell them about what's happening and what's here. And so that's what they do. I've tried to do that this week, you know. I've been trying to tell people, and I know I would be the same way, right? Somebody, one of your friends calls you up, one of your family members calls you up and says, man, we're having a revival. And they say, yeah, I've been in good revivals. Where I said, no, no, no. I mean, we're really having a revival. They, yeah, but I know we, we had one saved. And how many have been saved there? I said, well, nobody's been saved, but I feel like I've been saved again. It's been good. It's like people just don't, they're not getting it. They're not, they're not understanding how rejuvenating it's been. They run back to that city and they holler out and they said, you won't believe it. Nobody's there. And everything's like it was. The fire is still burning. God has provided. And those people say, uh, that's how, no, there's no way. That's not possible. What do you mean it's not possible? The, the prophet had just prophesied it the day before. Isn't that the amazing thing about sometimes the state of our hearts as God's people? God's word tells us so plainly of his promises that the effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man avails much, and yet we get discouraged in prayer. The promises of God tells us that what shall he withhold from his very elect who cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Nothing. He will answer them speedily what they ask for. Oh, his word assures us over and over of all of these wonderful promises. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. I love it. That he can do beyond what we think exceedingly rather, excuse me, I got to remember those words, exceedingly abundantly beyond what we can ask or think. I love the fullness and the descriptiveness of that verse, don't you? It's like, the writer knew abundantly is not enough. What's another word I can come up with? How about exceedingly abundantly beyond what we can think or ask? It's like the writer does not know how to fully convey the promises that are ours in Christ. 
And so he just comes up with the most hyperbolic words that he can find, shoves them all together, and it's the equivalent of when a kid says, very, 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 very. That's what the apostle's doing there. He's saying God can do beyond what we can even think or ask. And that's what he did for those people. They had been told they still didn't believe it, and God still blew their minds. Finally, they get the hint of it. So in verses 17 through 20, we find out in very, the very end of the verse, very end of the chapter, verse 20, it takes us back to that man in unbelief. And it says, remember what God's, remember what the prophet said there? And it finishes out that story and says, here's what happened to that man. They opened up the gates to the city And there was such excitement about what was in the city that the people trampled the man and he saw it, but he never tasted of it. Lost friend, tonight, this revival, that man makes me think of you. If you have not sought the Lord this week, why remain in a state of unbelief? God's blessings have abounded in a way among God's people that are indescribable. People among us who never talk by their own word, Sister Melanie, others hesitant to speak, have it overflowing out of them. Rivers of living water as Jesus predicted that it would be Fountains of water running out of them, bringing forth life and truth to people. Experimental knowledge of what the the scripture makes a promise to you. Lost friend, when you hear these testimonies, what I want you to realize is happening is that it is the word becoming alive, becoming uh, effective and alive within the lives of these people. And they're telling you about it. I can read about John 3.16. I can tell you about the plan of redemption, but the power of a testimony is the application of God's word lived through the personal experience of God's people. It's why it's such a powerful thing to listen to God's people. It's why you ought to be grateful and responsive because it ought to give you hope that this is not some abstract philosophy that doesn't work when applied, but rather what you so often hear is that even though the words are inspired in the scriptures, even those words are insufficient to fully express the fullness of what happens when God saves us. Joy unspeakable. And that's real, listen, I felt it all week. I can't contain it. I just want to talk about it. About what God is doing in my soul. And listen, he's doing something here. And I can't express it. A peace that passes all understanding. Not only the understanding of other people, but my understanding. The person experiencing the peace. Saying, I I can't understand it, but it's here. And it's vibrant and it's real. And yet as this 
picture that the scriptures gives us paints so well what prevented this man from tasting the fullness of that uh, of God's provisions was his own unbelief at the word of God and what God can and was willing to do. If you remain unbelief and in unbelief, it will be your undoing just like it was his. Over and over, that's what the scriptures tell us, is that it is unbelief. It is a man or a woman being exposed by God's providence to his word and to his truth, feeling it, experiencing, being drawn by his spirit, knowing in their heart that what is being done is real. You know how I, you know, I look at that going on in Elisha? They go to, what did they go to Elisha for? Because he was a prophet that was known to tell the truth. Like it or hate it, when they got in hard times, they ran to the man that was telling the truth. And they knew there was something about that man and the message that he proclaimed. And yet they failed to believe. And shall unbelief make it? Shall the, that's what Paul in Romans is asking. Shall the, the, the faith of those unbelieving Jews or the lack of faith in those unbelieving Jews because of their heritage, just because of who they were, just because of what they were exposed to in the oracles of God and the workings of God. And listen, it's the same for you. You can, that you can come into these doors every single Sunday. You can darken this altar every single week, but it is unbelief that is preventing you from finding God and absolute trust that God is able and sufficient to provide for you the provisions you need to live and to live eternally. Amen. You know, I was thinking about all days today, I was thinking about what Brother Danny said. And I'm, I'm kind of with him. I don't like giving a lot of advice to lost people because the moment I got saved, I don't even know what was happening, if I'm being honest. I was just down there and I was just, it was just, I don't know. I don't know what was happening, Brother Danny. I was just, I remember the same thing. I don't want you to say this, just like Brother Danny said. I'm not telling you that for this reason. But all I kept saying in my heart is, Lord, please help me. Please help me, please. And I was saying that over and over and over again. But listen, as he so well put last night, my heart was saying so much more. I was pleading with groans that were unutterable. I don't know exactly what was different between five seconds before I got saved and the moment I got saved, but there was something that was different. I know part of it was the condition of my heart got where these men were. Just total desperation. I don't care what happens to me. I just want you. And I found more than what these men found. A lot more. They ate that food. They wore those clothes. They spent that gold. What I have right now is as good as brand new. And it's filled me all week. You know, I've, I've wondered before. I've been so full this week. I haven't needed food. I'm not kidding. One bit. I've not, I've not felt the normal clock telling me, you need to eat, you need to sleep, you need to do these things. Why? Because of what God gave me October 6, 1998. He saved me and he filled me with abundance. 
And lost friend, He'll do the same for you tonight. Oh, what Jesus, the equivalent, if we really wanted to make an equivalence to this story, would be this. They walked into the city, and their leprosy was perfectly cleansed. And they were all anointed kings of that city. And they were given glorified bodies. And they were changed inwardly and out. They were, they were flying. Because the day God saved me, that's what happened to me. A lot more than just getting fed. Lost friend, God will do it. Don't let your unbelief, don't let your discouragement, don't let the condition that you've been in for a long time, as these men have, discourage you from leaving it all out there and seeking after God. Don't give up. You know, even in these men's despair, on the brink of death, the noble thing is they never gave up. Lost friend tonight, as we have a song, don't give up. Go to the Lord. Ask Him again. He has made abundant provision for you, and it can satisfy you tonight. Let's all stand and sing this evening.